0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation, and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths' faithful volunteer and dramatist, Leslie Ford. Thanks for joining in our quest.
1: In today's Christ Followers Bible study, we're going to visit the book of Malachi. This is the last book in the Old Testament, and we have Mark Horton that is going to be leading our study. And we, as we like to do, we open with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for giving us this Bible that contains so many truths that we can apply to our lives and to understand your nature and the kingdom that you've given us here and in heaven. We thank you for Mark and his willingness to lead our studies and bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Welcome, Mark.
2: Well, thank you, Tom. It's great to be back with everyone. We are going to uh, look at this book of Malachi. It's a little bit uh, unique in a few areas. It's, of course, as mentioned, the the last book in in the way that our Bibles are put together in the Hebrew part of the Bible, uh, which we call the Old Testament. Uh, It is written by someone that is unknown outside of this book. And, in fact, the scholars aren't even sure if Malachi is a, is a name or not. It has the meaning of, of my messenger in the, in the Aramaic or Hebrew. And some suggest that it's an abbreviation of Yahweh's messenger. So they don't really know if that's just a description of the person writing or if it's actually the person's name. But most of the prophets were named, whereas in the New Testament we find... Uh, Anonymous books, but uh, this one, if it is anonymous, it's one of the few that is anonymous in the Old Testament. So leave that for you to mull over. We also don't really know when this was written. Probably around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and the rebuilding of the temple after the uh, return from Babylon. But a few scholars date it as late as 200 uh, BC in the uh, time just leading up to the Maccabees, but there's no way to tell really from the context of the book or from any external source anything about uh, when the book was actually written. But it it certainly can fit any time uh, in that range from the rebuilding of the Temple, say, 470 B.C. uh, up to 200 B.C. The book is also unique in that it has a, a different style of writing than we find, I guess, in any other book of the Bible. It's almost like a legal exchange where an assertion or charge is put forth, a fancied objection is raised by the hearers, and then a refutation to their objection is presented by the speaker. This type of teaching uh, became prevalent later in the uh, Judean schools and in the synagogue. So like the school of Gamaliel that we read in, about in Jerusalem where Saul went, those type of schools uh, use this this type of exchange uh, commonly by the first century. But it's the only book in the Bible that's uh, written in this style. The book appeals to uh, Yahweh as the source uh, of the message, which is uh, done in, in a lot of books, So 25 times the source of the words. Are attributed to God rather than to the, the human author. The book, I guess, would be considered anti Semitic today because it's uh, highly critical of Judean leadership. And of course, if you, if you criticize Jewish leadership or Israeli leadership today, you're automatically considered an anti Semite. So I guess Malachi and God were anti Semitic because this book is extremely hostile to the uh, leadership of Judea. And that's about all the, uh, the comments I have in the way of introduction. Does anyone have any uh, other thoughts or comments or questions?
1: I was curious, oh. Mark, you plan to study Acts next? What prompted you to pick Malachi as a starting point or prior to the book of Acts?
2: Well, there's not any specific link to Acts, per se, but it is uh, we've been trying to go back and get some Old Testament books, and this one is, uh, is shorter, and it also has a pretty negative message. It really sets the context for the whole New Testament, and uh, that's really what I had in mind when I was uh, thinking of, of going back and taking this is just because it kind of wraps up everything in the Hebrew Scriptures, and then sets the tone and the context for the beginning of the Greek Scriptures, uh, the New Testament. All right, so that was just why I selected this. Okay, if there aren't any other comments, let's begin reading chapter 1 down through verse 5, please.
3: Malachi 1, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask... How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? The Lord says. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of
2: Israel. All right, thank you. This word of the Lord to Israel is called a burden by Malachi, so that would kind of lead us to believe that this might not all be pleasant news. The discourse is started by God pronouncing his love for Israel. And these definitions are so important. Israel is addressed rather than Judah or Judea. As a whole people, Israel had been decimated by the Assyrians and then by the Babylonians. And just a tiny remnant of the, of the Judean people survived to be the whole remnant of the people of Israel. So Judean was their their nationality but their their heritage was as Israelites and they're being addressed as Israel rather than as Judah here to go which would take them back in time uh before all these successive decimations to when they were all one people and really it goes back to God choosing Israel to be his special people for his possession this is kind of looking towards the marriage that God wants for, for his son and the people that he wants for his own possession and his dwelling place on the earth. So this love isn't just, well, you know, I, I really like you and I took care of you. This, this love is, is a deeper love such as a husband would have for a wife. And Israel is questioning this. You know, well, you you know, you haven't really loved us. Well... <laughs> To answer, he goes back to the idea that Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob, who later became Israel and was the patriarch of the entire nation of Israel, was actually the younger son. His older brother Esau should have received the inheritance from their father Isaac. But Jacob had a nickname of the supplanter. I think he also had a nickname of the deceiver through questionable means he bargained for Esau's birthright and then made sure that he got it even long after Esau could have changed his mind and decided that that wasn't such a good deal after all. Uh, So the word Israel and the word Jacob are closely related because they're two names for the same man and for his descendants. And when it says Esau, it's the same thing. It's talking about Esau and his uh, descendants. God chose Jacob rather than Esau. So it, the emphasis here is not that God hated Esau, it's just that he chose Jacob and loved him and there was judgment executed upon uh, Esau as a person and then uh, much, much later on his descendants. His mountains were laid waste, and his heritage has been wasted and is now only fit for the jackals to possess. If they try to rebuild, uh, in verse 4, uh, God says he'll throw it back down. They shall be called a territory of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. And and this goes back to specific bad things that Edom did to Israel. They tried to impede the movement of of the Israelites out of Egypt into Canaan and they really acted like a bad enemy. And so uh, God cursed them. And this is really, it's not just pointing that, you know, God can do bad things to people if he gets mad at them, but it's showing that he was guarding and protecting uh, Israel like a husband would guard and protect his wife. And, and this is what he's presenting as evidence Of his love for uh, Israel and by the time this was written in all likelihood uh, the nation of Edom which were Esau's descendants uh, would have been almost gone they still existed Uh, there were a few of them left by the first century but not very many King Herod was a descendant of Esau and uh, that produces all kinds of interesting enmities uh, uh, there too But pretty much they were a destroyed people, and and Herod was a little bit bitter. Uh, Particularly, he held uh, a lot of animosity towards the house of David, because David's descendants as the kings of Judah had uh, kind of finished off Edom as a nation. Uh, So anyway, because they had threatened and fought against his beloved people, the Lord would have indignation against them forever. And then he says... Your eyes shall see and you shall say the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So up until this time and for some time after this, each nation kind of thought of their own God as being the regional God and the Lord Yahweh was God of Israel and so everyone thought well that's okay because every little province can have their own God but Yahweh asserts uh, off and on throughout the Bible that he is uh, God beyond the borders of of Israel. He's different than these other uh, regional deities. All right, any other thoughts or comments?
3: When God gets angry with someone, he's very intense about it, it seems. Esau sold his birthright to Jacob for a, a mess of pottage, and now it this shows that the Lord has enmity against Esau now and uh, favors completely Jacob that's interesting to me how intense the Lord can uh, carry things down you know the human line well there's
2: yeah you know we've we've had discussions on some of these harsh judgments against nations but there's something in the wedding vows that are, that have been typically used about that you will prefer him or her above all others. Does that sound familiar to anyone? I, I don't. That's not the exact words that they use, but but I, I think that that, that helps this make a little more sense. That uh, God is yeah. is demonstrating not so much that uh, he was extraordinarily mean to Edom, but just that he had preferred right. Israel above all others, and so. Israel's enemies received a horrible punishment because God was bound to Israel by a covenant of going back to Mount Sinai and going back to the promises to Abraham even before that. So Uh, I think, yeah.
4: It does seem like the Hebrew scriptures tend to prefer that kind of a God. They tend to bring that forward pretty much throughout. God is always
2: harsh. Well, not always, but uh, there there is a there is a certain definitely a harsh edge to it in the Hebrew Scriptures that we don't find at all uh, in the New Testament. We have the how book much, of Open. I'm sorry.
4: How much of that would you attribute to the style of the writers who wrote the Hebrew Scriptures?
2: Well, I can't really answer that. I would say that certainly part of it could be attributed to the the time and the place of the writing. And how that would influence the earthly uh writer
3: you know and prophet and so on um, well, but it well, the all it, well the Old Testament was the old covenant right and and the New Testament's the new covenant, so there is a different relationship
2: oh yeah there the relationship is definitely contrasted, just for interest here, the short little book of Obadiah, which is only one chapter back right before the book of Jonah, is basically a 21-verse curse on uh, Edom and Esau, and it's very it's very pointed, it's very um, violent in the pronouncement upon what's going to happen to Edom, but it also explains it a lot more than what we see in Malachi. Malachi is just using this as an example to prove God's love for Israel, whereas Obadiah pretty much explains the charges against them, and justifies why they will be utterly destroyed uh, and slaughtered as, as a nation. Uh, because they should have, well, like uh, Obadiah, verse 11, "...you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress." When the Babylonians took Judah and Jerusalem, the Edomites had apparently stayed at peace with the Babylonian overlords, and they were allowed to come in and loot Judah when the Babylonian army was done, and they apparently finished off a lot of the victims who were left defenseless and enslaved others and took real advantage of that opportunity, and they were near kinsmen to the Israelites. And the book of Obadiah basically holds them accountable for for these crimes. Uh, verse fourteen, you should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off the Judeans who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those who remained in the day of distress. So they really served as uh, uh, helpers to the Babylonians to uh, to mm-hmm. utterly destroy uh, Judah. So anyway, that's just that's a little bit of background uh, on that. All right, uh, let's continue now. Uh, with all like paragraph. modern
4: day politicians.
2: They well, <laughs> yeah.
4: took the best deal they could get. Yep, I think they did.
2: Let's begin there with verse 6 and read the next paragraph,
3: please. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priest. Who show contempt for my name. But you ask, How have we shown contempt for your name? You place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now implore God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty.
2: All right, thank you. So he's continuing on with this case against uh, Israel here. That the first statement is that I have demonstrated my love for you, and now he is laying the charge that they don't honor and respect him. He's supposed to be the husband figure to the people of Israel and a father figure at the same time and it it was a it was an inferior covenant you when you when you look at the relationship defined on Mount Sinai, you very much get a little bit of this. Uh, servant and master relationship and certainly some weddings have been like that in in some cultures uh, even today and going back through time the the woman in the marriage has virtually no rights and, and becomes almost the slave to the husband and so it was kind of an inferior relationship in that way but at least there should have been respect shown uh, to God by them, and they don't have any respect for him at all. And then he moves on to say that, that he lays it kind of at the priest's uh, feet, and they deny, of course, that they don't respect him or despise his name. And so then he starts laying out specific uh, reasons by offering these tainted sacrifices. When you go back to the Law of Moses given at Mount Sinai, it's very clear that all the sacrifices had to be from the very best. The lamb that was offered had to be without blemish. And that, it says that over and over and over again. But what they were doing at this time was just trying to cull out all the worst animals out of their flock and then offering uh, those culls up for the sacrifices in Jerusalem. And I guess everything was kind of going in that vein—the the bad wine, the mildewed grain—they were just trying to get rid of it and, and bringing it up to Jerusalem. And the priests were were accepting it uh, for some reason or another. And and uh, offer offer this to your to your governor. They would have <laughs> still been. They would have either been in the Persian Empire when this was written, or they would have been in one of the uh, Greek empires that uh, descended from Alexander the Great. There would have been uh, an overlord or governor over them at this time. And so the point is is that if you offered this to your, to your governor, you know you'd be in big trouble.
3: Oh, well, for sure.
2: Yeah, but, but you don't think anything about offering it to me. So it's this lack of respect for their husband, for their father, for their master. They have no respect for God at all.
3: In other words, they got lazy, and uh, they just were going through the motions of worshiping. They didn't really care about what they were doing.
4: Mark, skipping ahead then, did the Edomites then, they became royalty at the time of King Herod in Jesus' time, which was 400 years later maybe. Uh, Did they change then, or or was this just a sign of the total corruption of the... Judeans that uh, they, they then had amalgamated with these Edomites to where the Edomites actually had position in uh, the kingdom of the time of Jesus.
2: Well, it was certainly a great irony because, again, the, the Edomites had been decimated uh, by David and, and by his descendants. And uh, there was great enmity between the Edomites and the house of David. And so it's quite ironic that uh, the the Judeans are supposed to be waiting for a son of David to retake the throne and reestablish their kingdom. And instead, they, they end up with uh, a son of Esau, uh, Herod, <laughs> as their king. So there is quite a bit of irony. And it may have been part of their punishment or a preview of their punishment to come to have these Idumeans as they were called at the time. But that, that's just a variation on the word Edomite, Idumean, you know, ruling Judah. But the, the, the Idumeans were a gone people by that time. I mean, Herod was almost the last of the whole nation, and they faded into oblivion. You know, by, I don't know, you never, by the time you get past Herod, the great's grandchildren, you don't ever hear of any Edomite. Do or anything after that, pretty much forever and ever. So I can't really answer the question. It's a good question, but I can't really answer it for sure. But there is definitely some irony there.
4: Maybe what we have.
2: I'm sorry, oh, well. Chuck. Could you could you repeat that? I said maybe what we
4: have today in Israel is the Edomites.
2: Well, or some such uh, symbolic uh, copy yeah. of them. Yeah. All right. Then let's see. Let's read the uh, rest of the chapter then.
3: Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hand. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled, and of its food it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, or diseased animals, and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared, among the nations. All right, thank you.
2: Now, if a if a husband went into his wife and said, "I have no pleasure in you and I won't accept anything you try to give to me or do for me," that might signify that the marriage was in trouble, would you not think? I would think. And then if the husband starts talking about what this other woman is going to do for him instead, um, you might think that the marriage was even more trouble than you thought. So not that 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 necessarily is the image that's in in mind here, but I, I don't think that any part of the Bible gets too far from this imagery of God wanting this people for his own possession, and Israel was supposed to be that but they weren't they they were they were treating it contemptuously the relationship they were just treating it like it was dirt and like it was nothing and so we see a picture of the future here where my name is going to be great all over the world amongst the other nations of the non-israelite nations uh, so to speak here and uh, a little more detail but repetitive description of, of bringing in these uh, reject animals. Remember that every animal sacrificed under the Mosaic Law was an image of Jesus Christ. So the reason that these animals had to be blameless without sacrifice is because they were an image of God's Son who was perfect and blameless and, and so on. So it's really... The
3: Passover lamb, yeah.
2: Yeah, but all of them had to be you know without blemish. But uh, certainly it goes into great lengths to describe how perfect the uh, the Passover animals had to be. So anyway, this was a this was a real ugly scene building in in uh, God's mind here and in the relationship between uh, God and Israel. All right, any
4: other thoughts or comments? Well I can think of another reason why the why the sacrificed animal had to be perfect and that is that by nature of a sacrifice it's giving up something of value and if it's a if it's a, if it's a weak animal it's going to be disposed of anyway something you can you can't uh, use husband or, or farm then obviously the person is not giving God anything and not giving up anything and the sacrifice has no meaning from a practical point of view, because the person giving it up wouldn't care, would not miss it. And, and
3: yes, and it looks like the priests were turning around and saying, "This is contemptible. This is awful. This is whatever," and that made God even more angry. You know uh, that
4: they would do this. And then, well, they were and then certainly right?
2: help They were by allowing Jesus, it
4: to by, happen. By Jesus' time, were not the priests actually black marketing the sacrificed meat out the back door? for money? <laughs> weren't, they, weren't they actually making money on the sacrificed meat?
2: Oh, they did. They were allowed to, and yes, they did. The, the The high priestly family was extremely wealthy by the time of the first century. They, so they, were, they were able really to broker. the. Well, I, you know, I, they were allowed, a lot of it was their personal possession. They were supposed to eat part of it, but they were allowed to sell part of it as well. So they oh. They, but uh, they were they were very shrewd, and they were able to take this huge offering that came from Babylon every year. Remember, most of the Judeans stayed in Babylon and never came back to rebuild the country. And so every year there was this huge, huge treasure caravan that gathered up all the offerings from the Judeans in Babylon and brought it over uh, to the temple. And so portion of that ended up in the priest's hands, and uh, they—they were—they were quite wealthy. Not all of them. I mean, like John the Baptist's father wasn't particularly wealthy, but the high priestly families were uh, were quite well off.
4: No wonder God was sick of the whole bunch.
2: Well, it gets a lot better. Just you know, this is just a preview. <laughs> We've got we have three more chapters to go, and it gets. <laughs> A lot worse, and that's you know that's the point of looking at this book because it uh, it ends with this horrible curse, which is you know reminiscent of what curse had already been pronounced upon Edom. Well, that same type of curse is going to be pronounced upon uh, Judah, and you know as Malachi ends, we see John the Baptist starting off hundreds of years later with exactly the same message that Malachi uh, had at the end of the, the era of, of prophecy in uh, Israel. So anyway, it, it gets worse. But I think that's a good uh, point to break here, uh, here and we, we'll hope to pick up next week with Chapter
1: 2. Okay. Oh. Okay, well, thanks, Mark. That was a good introduction to Malachi and we'll look forward to continuing on next week
0: thanks for listening be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and please visit our website whtt.org you will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and Unheralded news articles also you can order our new video Christian Zionism the Tragedy and the Turning part 1